Wombat. Eddie, I'm telling you, you'll be proud of me because I was very tempted just to go back with the recap uh, type introduction, but I got another introduction, uh, and I was like, no, I'm going to do a story introduction, and then when I did that one, I was like, you know, that doesn't really fit with the direction we need to go, so I completely read it. So I came up with two full introductions, not just a, hey, open your Bibles, let's go introduction. You know what's really ironic is I'm going to open with, hey, open your Bibles, <laughs> Oh, man, love that. Love that. Ready? I'd rather... Eat. No, go ahead. <laughs> no, AJ, you go. I'm just messing with you. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> Amen. All right. So what if I told you that last year, the United States of America, our country, our government, was under attack for six months before anybody knew about it? That's kind of crazy to think about, right? But it's absolutely true. Last year, 2020, the United States experienced a cyber attack that you may have heard about in the news. It came out in December that we had been attacked by uh, foreign uh, cyber hackers. And the crazy thing was, is as they started digging, they found out that the attack didn't begin in December. It didn't begin in November. It didn't begin in October. The attack began all the way in March. And the word just didn't get out. They didn't really see it until later on in December. Here's a quote from a news article about it. It said, key federal agencies from the Department of Homeland Security to the agency that oversees America's nuclear weapons arsenal were reportedly targeted as were powerful tech and security companies, including Microsoft. Investigators are still trying to determine what information the hackers may have stolen and what they could ultimately do with it. Now, I know that's kind of a crazy thought. You would think that if we were at war, we would know. If we were being attacked, we would know. But in an ever-changing world, that's not always the reality. The growing threat of cyber attack is more and more real every day. And what we saw last year is that we were under attack. We were at war and nobody saw it. Now, for those of us who are Christians, followers of Jesus, that should be a, a very familiar idea because as followers of Jesus, we believe that we right now, this day, are in an unseen war. We're in what we're calling for the next three weeks, a cosmic 
conflict, a battle between good and evil that rages in the world today and will ultimately culminate toward the end of time. And we're reading about that in the book of Revelation. It's a war that matters every single day. It's a war whose effects we feel in our families, at our jobs, we see on the news. And it's a war maybe that if we don't give it the attention we need, uh, can take more ground than we really intend. Let me tell you uh, about this cosmic conflict from another place in scripture. This is Ephesians 6.12 as it was translated by J.B. Phillips. And I love how he translates it. Listen to how he describes in Ephesians 6.12 this cosmic conflict. J.B. Phillips translates that. He says, our fight is not against any physical enemy. It is against organizations and powers that are spiritual. Listen to this. We are up against the unseen power that controls this dark world and spiritual agents from the very headquarters of evil. Now, this is how J.B. Phillips, again, translates Ephesians 6, 12. It's not an extremely literal translation. It's more of a loose paraphrase, but man, does it send chills down our spine that we are against spiritual agents from the very headquarters of evil. Listen, as followers of Jesus, this is the cosmic conflict that we are engaged in. So what we're going to do in the middle of our Revelation series is over the next three weeks, we're going to dig deeper into this cosmic conflict, what it looks like today and what it will ultimately look like in the future. And as we look in the coming chapters over these next few weeks, you're going to be tempted to get distracted and ask, what are those? Because if you think that we've seen some crazy symbolism, if you think we've seen some crazy imagery, you just are, are going to be shocked by what is in store. Because over the next few weeks, as we go from chapter 6 to chapter 9, and then in chapter 12, and in chapter 15, man, there are going to be some amazing images. And you're going to want to stop and say, what are those? What are those? What is that? What is that? What does it mean? But don't let what you don't understand distract you from the main point that I hope by the end of today that you'll see very, very clearly. So let's jump in, pick up where we've left off in our study of Revelation, begin looking at cosmic conflict starting in Revelation chapter 6. So it's 17 verses. I know it's a lot, but I think to really understand what we're going to be talking about today, we should probably read it in its entirety. So let's start reading together. Revelation chapter 6, verse number 1. John writing says, and now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals. So stop right there. Hopefully that's familiar. If you were with us last week, you know the setting that John's talking about. In Revelation 4 and 5, he's in the throne room of heaven. He sees the one seated on the throne with a scroll in his hand sealed with seven seals. And no one but the slaughtered lamb who was slain or who was standing can take the seal and is, or the scroll and is worthy to open the seal. Well, here in chapter 6, that's what John sees. He sees the lamb take the scroll and begin to open those seven seals. He says, and he watched the lamb open one of the seven seals. And then he heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. 
And when he opened the third seal, I heard the living, third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over the fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beast of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were killed as they themselves had been. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon, uh, the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the cave and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and for the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Man, what a, what a powerful chapter. What a chapter full of vivid imagery, of action, really of judgment and of wrath. And that's what the seven seals that we just read opened by the Lamb are. These seven seals begin a period of judgment from the one seated on the throne and from the land out on the earth. And we see it in three sections. We see it in what we read here in chapter six with the, the seven seals. We see it next in the blowing of seven trumpets. And then we see it last in the pouring out of seven bowls. And each of these seals, trumpets, and bowls represent the judgment and wrath of a holy God against a sinful world that is poured out in a more and more intense fashion as they go along. It is this period of time towards the end of time that is often referred to as the tribulation, a period of intense judgment upon the earth. And almost certainly these events that we just read in the seals that you can read in the trumpets and see in the bowls are future events. Now, although many of these catastrophes that you read about have been experienced maybe in a lesser fashion by the church throughout her existence, but it's important to remember that these events that are almost certainly future are not necessarily linear. There are interludes, there are phrases. This is not a read it and put it on the map as a timeline kind of thing. And if we're being honest, they're not always 100% clear. Like, what does it mean when stars fall from the sky? What does it mean when locusts cover the face of the earth? What does it mean? Well, what do these things mean? We, we have an idea, but we may not know specifically. 
And the reason we read chapter 6 today is because I think the first four seals, the four horsemen that we read about, are a great example of this. That they are almost certainly a future event, that we see their present reality in the world today, and what they mean we have a general understanding of, even if we don't know specifically. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about those four horsemen that are often referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. More than likely, the four horsemen that we see released in those first four seals, those four horsemen that John saw and the reality they represent, uh, they're going to be released during this period of tribulation in an unseen ferocity uh, upon the earth. However, I also think it's clear that these four horsemen and the reality they represent are active in our world today and really have been ever since John wrote his letter in the 90s AD. Matter of fact, in 1983, Billy Graham said this. He wrote a book called Approaching Hoofbeats where he talked about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And in that book, this is what he wrote. The shadows of all four horsemen can already be seen galloping throughout the world at this moment. Yes, I believe that these four horsemen will be released in a heretofore unseen ferocity upon the earth in this period of tribulation, but I also believe that these four horsemen are present across all of time and are always uh, laying their harsh realities on mankind today. These four riders that John saw were present for those churches in Asia Minor that John was riding to, and they're present for us still today. Well, let's press in even further. What are, or maybe who are these horsemen? Well, the the very first horse that we see, the white horse, we believe is representative of Antichrist. It may be representative of a person specifically referred to as Antichrist, and and we're going to deal with that more next week. Or, Or maybe it deals more generally with the spirit of Antichrist. But the idea here is that this white horse is someone who imitates Jesus but isn't. Matter of fact, maybe when you heard me read that, or if you've read Revelation before, when you read that there in verse two, you thought it was Jesus. It was riding a white horse. It was wearing a crown. It was carrying a bow. But but I think it's important that, number one, this is a different horse. This isn't the same horse that Jesus rode on. It's a different weapon. Jesus didn't carry a bow. He has a sword that proceeds out of his mouth. And really, it's a different description. Because here, as John begins to describe the four horsemen for us, he really doesn't describe the horseman as much as what catches his eye is the horse. A white horse, a red horse, a black horse, and a pale horse. But when Jesus sees, or when John sees Jesus riding on his horse, he is captivated by Jesus, who he was. That's his attention. So this is somebody who is trying to be like Jesus, but just isn't him. This antichrist is one who imitates the Savior, but has no power to save. And I think we see this reality on the world today through false hope, through deception, 
We see hearts and minds turned away from Jesus as they are deceived and as they are given false hope in other religions, in their own self-sufficiency, in the materialism of this world. We see these forces that would seek to take the place of Jesus and draw the attention and glory and honor and worship that is due him alone and rob it for themselves. That is the first horse. He's coming in the tribulation but that spirit of deception, of trying to save with no power to do so, we see it so much in our world today. The second horse is a red horse, a horse that represents war. This horse is born from anger, from hate, from jealousy. We first see this rider, I believe, make an appearance in the very garden of Eden when you have Cain and Abel, and Cain, filled with jealousy and rage, strikes down Abel in the very first murder. And I think that we still see this today. Obviously, we see wars today. We know that Jesus in the Olivet Discourse back in Matthew says that the end times are gonna be marked by wars and rumors of wars, nations rising against nations, kingdoms rising against kingdoms. Uh, But I think beyond that, you notice that this writer, if you go back and look, carries a sword. I think that's important because if we see that first rider on the white horse today through deception, I think we see the second rider just as clear today through division. Not deception, but division. Many commentators, speaking of this second seal on the rider, see the rider's sword as a symbol not just of military power, but of political division. (laughs) I don't think I need to spend much time pressing the relevance of this rider today, do I? We live in a divided nation. We live in a divided world and it is becoming increasingly more divided every single day. The only thing that I think I need to say here is just keep in mind that any division always has at least two sides. It's not always just their fault that we're divided. We need to see that the rider doesn't belong to any political party or any particular division. His business is just to divide and increase hate and anger and jealousy and rage. The third horse that we see in the third seal, John says, is a black horse. And that black horse represents famine. And I think maybe this is the one that we want to make most futuristic, that this famine this writer represents is a reality that we haven't experienced yet. And I do think, like I've said, that this writer will be released with a ferocity we haven't seen until that time of tribulation. But I think that this rider on the black horse who represents famine is still a very real and present reality in our world today, even if we don't see it as clearly. We already talked about 2020. You no doubt remember 2020. It was a crazy year. It was an impactful year. But here's the thing that may be the craziest of all. Do you remember toilet paper? Like, like how, how did that even be a thing? that the shelves were empty, toilet paper became valuable. People were selling it online in an unseen, unimaginable markup. We had a toilet paper famine in the United States. Now, let me ask you this. What if that had been bread? Could you imagine? What if it wasn't toilet paper that ran out on our our shelves? What if it was bread? What was milk? What if it was eggs or meat See, here's what you need to understand. For many churches, 
in the past and many churches in the present, it was and it is. Their shelves aren't stocked the way ours are. They live off of one meal a day. They strive to get by. So when we think through our very Americanized minds about, well, famine's something coming in the future. No, 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 family, it's real today, even if we don't see it. Our brothers and sisters are dealing with it. But I think there's a deeper level, level here. Um, Matt Chandler, pastor of the Village Church, describes famine like this. I, I love it. This is just my paraphrase of how he describes it. He says, famine is when we have too much of what we don't need and we lack what we do. And I think you see that there in the text, right? Because this third seal, when it's broken, not only does he see the rider who is famine, but he hears the voice that says, hey, uh, I'll pay anything for that bread. Hey, I'll pay anything uh, for that oil. And and I think that's kind of the idea here is that famine was when the money that they had craved was far less valuable than the food that we needed. They had too much of something they didn't need and they didn't have enough of what they truly did. And I think in our world today, yes, there is a famine for the body that is being experienced by churches and people all over the world. But I think that there is a very real famine for the soul that we see in the church in America today. I'm not so sure that in the church in America today, one of our biggest issues isn't famine. We have too much of stuff we just don't need. And the things that we do are the things that we lack. Let's move on to the fourth horse the pale horse who is death, sickness, and disease. Matter of fact, that word pale horse there is maybe not the right description. When we think pale, we think white. Maybe even in your mind, you think translucent. But the real literal idea behind the pale horse is that this horse is the color of sick. When you think of that, that, that's the color, that kind of yellowish, greenish, pale, that's the idea here. It's literally the color of sick. And with all our medical advances, that rider still rides today. Yes, it's going to get worse in that period of tribulation, but it's a real thing today. We're living in the middle of it. Even with all our medical advances, even with our technology, we still fight disease. And listen, we still fight death. Death is a reality for all of us. All of us have been affected by it and we feel its consequences. So I think when you look at these four riders, these four horsemen of the apocalypse, these first four seals, you kind of see that idea that we talk about is, yes, there is coming the seals and the trumpets and the bowls in the future that is going to engulf the world in a period of tribulation and judgment. But we also see these things very real in our world today. And I don't want you to, to, to see that. Listen, guys, don't miss the forest trying to identify all of the trees right here. See, it's probably easier here when we talk about these seals and trumpets and bowls than anywhere else in the book of Revelation to get bogged down in the details and the timing of what John writes. You want to know when the seals happen, how close to the trumpet do the bowls come in the last three and a half years during the great tribulation? What are the locusts? Are the stars falling from the sky, nuclear missiles? And what I'm trying to tell you is this, guys, don't get caught up in that and miss the point. Don't miss the point. 
See, the point of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls is not that we would know specifically how they're going to play out or what timeline they will follow. The point of all of that is that our holy God, the one who is seated on the throne and holding the scroll of history, the slaughtered lamb who is still standing, will not forever sit idly by and let the sin of this world go unpunished. That's the point The point is not specifically what the judgments are. The point is that judgment for sin is coming. Sin will be punished and it will be punished severely. And when we just, what we just read, uh, read about the, the first of the seals, that's bad. It just gets worse until the end of the bowls in Revelation chapter 16. And I think our problem with this is that this harsh reality of judgment from the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls goes squarely against our sense of fairness. I think this is true of everybody, but it's probably more specifically true of us in the Western world is we, and maybe even America primarily, we have a very strong sense of right and wrong, a very strong sense of justice, a very strong sense of fairness. Uh, matter of fact, just this last week, we saw this play out on the national, heck, international stage in the person of Simone Biles, Right? Man, what a firestorm on social media. You know, my favorite tweet of the week was the guy who said, yes, I have an opinion of Simone Biles. No, I won't share it. You're welcome, (laughs) right? I mean, everybody's talking about it. It started with her being treated in many's eyes as unfairly treated by the Olympics committee. They said, hey, you're too good. The things that you do, other people can't do. So we're not gonna judge you the same as everybody else. And then some people say, well, was it fair that after that she decided to step back and not compete? And there was this whole war, this raging idea about fairness. What is fair? What is not fair? And I think when we see these seals, when we see these trumpets, when we see the bowls, when we see all of this calamity and judgment, there's something right that rises up in us and says, hey, that's not fair. This seems like overkill. Like, I know that the world is bad. I know people have screwed up. I know we've done some stuff. But man, this is crazy. A fourth of the world's population, a third of the world's population, this isn't fair. But I would say this. It may seem, when you read about the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, this judgment of God may seem unfair, and it may seem like overkill, but that's only because we don't see sin clearly. Here's what I mean. When we think of sin, we tend to think like of sin in a matter of degrees, but that's not right. Guys, sin is not measured in degrees. Sin is a zero-sum game. What does that mean? Zero-sum games mean that there's just a definite amount, and for somebody to get more, others have to get less. And when we say sin is a zero-sum game, this is what I mean. When we understand uh, what sin is, you're not 50% righteous and 50% sinful. You're not 70% sinful and 30% righteous. When it comes to sin, it's a zero-sum game. You are either holy or you are sinful. There is no third option. See, and I think we missed the point because when we uh, see sin and think of sins in terms of how it affects us and how it affects others, those sins against ourselves and against others are very finite and measurable. So we think about them in degrees. 
Those specific sins that we think about themselves may seem better or worse than others, but even there, it becomes a very nuanced argument. See, the problem is our sin is not primarily first and foremost against others. It's not primarily first and foremost against ourselves. Sin is rebellion against the one seated on the throne, God himself, the one we read of in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. I love this quote I heard a long time ago from a pastor. He says, where God is small and we are big, judgment is unthinkable. I think that's why we think, man, this isn't fair. Man, this is overkill. Because we see ourselves as big, we see others as big, and we see God as small. See, listen, listen, harm done to our fellow man is terrible and should be fought at every turn by followers of Jesus. I'm not trying to diminish that at all. But... What truly gives sin its weight is that sin is, the, is a central rejection of God as the one seated on the sovereign throne of the universe. That's what makes sin, sin. See, I, I love this. Let me, let me read for you a little bit of an extended quote from Pastor John Piper. I think he nails it. He says, the essence of evil is loving and preferring and desiring and treasuring and enjoying anything above God. It's treason. And since God is of infinite worth and beauty and greatness and honor, infinite, the failure to love and treasure and enjoy him above all things is an infinite outrage, worthy of infinite punishment. And this will make no sense where God is small and man is big. It will only make sense where people see God as great as he really is and see man, see ourselves, and see our outrageous, God-belittling self-centeredness for what they really are. God gives us a glimpse of his rage towards such evil in the words from Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. This is God talking. He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. Piper ends by saying, The great shock, the great appalling reality in the world is that humans have turned from God as the all-satisfying fountain of life and joy and tried to find it not in God, but in what he made. It is high treason and worthy of eternal punishment. I think he nails it. That's why this isn't overkill. That's why this isn't unfair. Our sin against others is measurable and finite, but our sin against a holy and infinite God carries with it infinite consequences. And so here's the point. All of our sin, any of our sins, deserves the full wrath of a holy God. And that just kind of brings us, right, back to the last question that they asked in verse 17 of chapter 6. Not, what are those? The question that they cry out when they're undergoing this judgment is, who can stand? If any of our sin deserves the infinite punishment of a holy God, then who can stand up to that? Well, John, Jesus gives us the answers in chapter seven. He said, only those who can can stand are only those who have been washed 
by the blood of the lamb. As John looks into chapter seven, he sees 144,000 of the Jewish nation who have been sealed by the spirit and washed by the blood of the lamb. He looks and he sees a great multitude clothed in white who are those who have been washed by the lamb. Those who can withstand the judgment of God are those who never have to experience it because they have already been washed clean by the sacrificial blood of the lamb that was slain, Jesus Christ himself. The only way that we are going to stand that judgment is when we trust Jesus to take it for us. So let me ask you a very pointed question. Can you stand? Have you been washed by the blood? Have you been saved? Because if you haven't, you can't stand the judgment no matter how good you are, no matter how hard you try to be a good person, not lie, uh, work hard, be reliable, no matter how many times you come to church, read your Bible, pray, no matter how much money you put in the offering box, there is nothing you can do that will help you withstand the judgment of God. Your only hope is to cry out in repentance and faith and ask Jesus to take that judgment for you and to wash you clean in his blood. And that doesn't happen accidentally. That doesn't happen over a period of time. That happens when you see your sinfulness and you see God's holiness, you see the judgment that is coming and you cry out to him. And if there's not been that moment, then you won't stand. But maybe today, maybe for the very first time, you see it. And so you're ready to cry out to God and say, Jesus, save me. If so, there are people right now who wanna pray with you on Facebook, on our online platform. Let us know. We wanna walk you through that. We want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that judgment is coming, but Jesus has taken it for you if you place your faith in him. So talk to us. Let us help you walk through that. I'm gonna pray for you. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this word. And I pray that we would not get caught up in all the imagery that ultimately doesn't matter that much, but that today we would clearly see the point that we are sinful, you are holy, and we deserve judgment. But because of the slaughtered lamb of God standing today before your throne, we can be saved, washed clean in his blood, and spared from the wrath to come. So I pray today for those who have not trusted Jesus as their savior, that they do that right now. In his name we pray, amen.